But it's, uh, it's really good to see you all this morning. Uh, my name is Doug Moister. I'm a pastor here at Renew. And uh, if this is your first time here with us, we are in the middle, or actually we're at the end. This is our very last uh, sermon uh, in a series that we have entitled Just Living, which is a series on justice. And we've, had, we've been essentially answering these two questions, and we've been looking at these two questions the whole time. And uh, the first question is, what is biblical justice and what implications does it have for Renew? So it's kind of a two-part question. Um, and again, what is biblical justice and what implications does it have for Renew? And so J.R. opened up the conversation about justice seven weeks ago. I know it's been a long time. And one of the things that he said, and I love this quote, it's going to be up on the screen. Um, if you ignore justice, you ignore the very heart of God. J.R. challenges to see the three levels of engaging in justice as number one, relief, number two, development, and number three, structural change. And the way that we talked about that was real simple in, in the way that when we think about the old parable, if you give a man a fish or teach a man a fish, well, relief is giving people fish, and that's needed, and it's important. Development is teaching people how to fish. We cannot do one without the other. And the third structural change is learning to fight for access for people to fish in the ponds where the fish actually are. And the truth is, church family, we all have responsibility to these things. Some of us may only ever have an opportunity to participate in relief. And some of us may be called to really work towards structural change. Uh, the gathering after that, Steve talked to us about the three overarching branches of injustice as sexism, racism, and classism. And Steve spoke on sexism. And one thing that he said that helped me understand injustice in such a tangible way was he said, all injustice flows from and to dehumanization. And he defined it as this, to treat someone as unhuman or less human or to deprive them from their humanness. That's powerful. And very helpful as we think through justice and what biblical justice is. And then last gathering, Ange helped us to look at racism from the perspective of her story and the scriptures. Uh, she blew open my mind with this idea of Ubuntu theology, which literally means humanness. This is a South African theology that literally says, I am because you are. A person is not a person without other people, and it really screams about the importance of others within our lives. One of the quotes that she said is that God is three-dimensional. What if humanity is not, the, is not only the reflection of God, but of God's great diversity, depth, beauty, and mystery? So we don't just reflect God in his entirety as individuals, but we all possess elements and aspects of God that are best understood in the context of the whole. And so for those of you who are just entering into this conversation, or if you've missed some of the previous teachings, um, the good news is, is you can check out our website, go onto our resource page, and you can listen to the teachings from before. Uh, but this morning, I, I want us to take a look at God's heart for justice. As I have an opportunity to wrap up uh, this series, there's a few things that I really want us to think through. And so as we think about God's heart for justice, at the end of the day, we have to understand that Renew, that the church, is part of a much bigger story. 
And the story that we're a part of is a story of God's reconciling action to the world. And if we were to put a title of the story or maybe a thesis around the story, I think we would, we would see that Jesus bears witness to it in Luke chapter 4 when he makes this statement as he opens the scroll of Isaiah and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Can I get an amen? You see, we are part of this prophetic tradition that Isaiah started, that Jesus picked up on, and that Jesus passes on to the church. And the truth is, church, is we get to proclaim this same statement. We get to proclaim it in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. We get to talk about it in our homes and in our kitchens, at the playgrounds and in prisons. To those who have been trafficked, abused, hungry, blind, and broken, this is the good news. And we proclaim this good news. That sin, the root cause of all the injustice in the world, the, 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 the cause that breaks and destroys our relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and the creation, it no longer holds power over those who belong to Jesus. The good news is that God became human and he took all of our stuff. He took all of our sin and our brokenness and it was crucified with Jesus on the cross. And Jesus went to the grave, but death did not hold him. He rose again and he mortally wounded the hold that sin and death have on humanity. Jesus is the good news. And he calls us to follow him. And as we follow, guilt and shame and rage and anger begin to fall. And, and we, as the ones who belong to the resurrected one, we become victorious with Christ over sin and death. And the wrong things begin to be set right. And the broken things are made whole. And the poor are provided for. These Jesus followers, a.k.a. the church, we are the called out ones. And as we think about today, we celebrated Pentecost which is the birthday of the church. And the birthday of the church is celebrated by the sending of the Holy Spirit to empower the church to be a witness to this kingdom that Jesus proclaimed as he opened the scroll of Isaiah. And the truth is, is we are a ragtag group of goodness plotters. And we, we are working our best at proclaiming that we have been and are being transformed by the resurrected Jesus. And what Jesus said all those years ago is what we are called to say today. And I want to tell us that that looks an awful lot like biblical justice. But I want to remind us this morning that the story is so much more than just words. And our call and the good news is so much more than just good words. I'm going to ask you to stand. You can open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. When the son is that it? I think it's on. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. 
All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or need you clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who were cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You may be seated. This passage packs a punch, to say the least. Uh, there, there is uh, some good background on the story. Uh, Jesus is finishing up. This is the, the, the last series of his sermons before he is crucified. And so this is kind of the culmination of all of his teaching throughout the book of Matthew. And so we have to understand that this comes from a, at a very important time in his ministry. And one thing we need to understand about sheep and goats, and I am a goat expert, believe it or not. I've had a few growing up. One of them fainted. It was a literal fainting goat. Check it out on YouTube. Um, but sheep and goats, they're not friends. They, uh, they're very, very different. Although they both say ba, their makeup is very, very different. I, I don't know many people that wear goat sweaters. I know there's like cashmere, but whatever. But for the most part, you think wool, right? You think sheep. And so shepherds would keep them separate because they seem to fight when they're together. Goats like to be warm. Sheep like the open air. Sheep were a lot more valuable than goats during this time. And characteristics like this may have influenced why Jesus decided to use sheep and goats in his story. For instance, in ancient writings, sheep were always associated with good and goats were associated with trouble. A lot of times, if, if you ever have a chance to watch goats and sheep, goats are, are lazy. Um, they, they like to climb stuff, but they're, they're, they're kind of lazy. And sheep are pretty active. They're always on the move. One thing that's fascinating about goats is they're known to eat anything. I mean, like, literally, you could put, like, plastic bottles in there, and they will eat them. They're, they're like human garbage disposals. They're just not very uh, picky eaters, to say the least. And sheep are very particular about what they eat. They continue to move, and they continue to graze, and they continue to look for the best food. 
One of the things that's really fascinating about this story, to the reader's surprise, us today and also to the ancients, is that the criterion of judgment is not confession of faith in Christ. Nothing is said of grace, justification, or forgiveness of sins. And what counts according to this parable is whether one has acted justly, loved mercy, and walked humbly. And such deeds are not a matter of extra credit. My friends, this is troubling to me. In one of Jesus' most straightforward teaching, we read this and we understand. It's not very clouded. It's really, really straightforward. It reminds me of something that Mark Twain said years and years ago. He said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. So I want to make this clear. Nowhere does it say that you said a prayer, you're in. You were a good attender of religious things and you made it. Nowhere does it say you read your Bible and you gave lots of money. Come on. We see that following Jesus is much, much more than words. It's an active thing, not just a Sunday morning thing. These good works are not the cause of salvation, but, but they are the effect of salvation. Because I don't want to downplay this moment when we make a commitment to Jesus and we begin to follow him. I don't want us to think that it just means we have to work out and do all these things in order to see Christ and to be called one of his own. We have to understand that belief plays just a significant role. That as our beliefs and our actions seem to move together. And we understand from the scriptures that our beliefs end up determining our actions. And what we believe, it should transform and change the way that we live and the way that we look at and treat those around us. And so as we think about the context of, of God, of Jesus spending this, this time with his disciples, with people around, talking about this idea of the least of these, we need to understand that we, as people that follow Jesus, are called to love the least of these because we believe that God loved us first when we were the least of these. And why are the least of these important to God? Well, let's take a step back here for a moment and look at the bigger story of God. And so when we understand the character and the person of God, we need to see that he has a passion for the least of these. And this passion wasn't hatched at the end of time, but this passion was from the very beginning. God has a passion for justice. And we see God make this, this covenant with Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the world. And God begins to act faithfully to Abraham. And that's what happens. God blesses Abraham. Abraham blesses others. But that blessing only moves so far. And eventually, Abraham's descendants end up in slavery in, in the land of Egypt. And in Exodus, we see God do amazing things. And he shows up and he rescues his people who are in slavery. The ones that he promised to, saying, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the world. And the scripture says that God hears the cries of his, of his people. That not only does he rescue them, but he feeds them. He waters them. He gives them an identity and a land. And he calls them to do the same 
for others. When we think about the Ten Commandments, a lot of times we see these rules and, and there's all these fights, but really, the beauty of the Ten Commandments was God took a, a, a nation of slaves who their entire identity was about production. What will you produce today? How many bricks? And he gave them an identity. Understanding some of the ideas behind slave mentality is there's, there's three things that I have to do. I have to work from the time I get up to the time I get to bed. I have to feed my family and I have to make a lot of babies because they have to continue to feed the family and continue to work in these ways. So, so when God pulls his people who are slaves into the desert and he gives them an identity, think about the moment when part of their identity is I want you to not work a day of the week. What are you talking about, God? I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm everything, my whole value, my whole life system, everything that I am is about what I do. And God says, no, you're not just a widget for our person, but now I'm giving you an identity. You're my kid and you rest on Sunday because that's when you remember that I love you, that I've pulled you out. We think about marriage. In a slave culture, marriage is not present because there's really no need for it. And God calls the people of Israel into these relationships. He has this weird, beautiful statement. He says, don't covet another man's wife. And so for, for a culture and a group that has nothing, now they begin to have an identity. Because God doesn't just pull people out and let them suffer and figure it out on their own. He pulls them out and he gives them an identity. And as we continue to look at the story of God throughout the scriptures, he continues to rescue his people. He continues to see them and call them to his own. And as we get into the prophets, much of the judgment against Israel is because Israel has become the slave masters and they're looking a lot more like Egypt than they are the people that God delivered from slavery. They're oppressing the poor and the needy. And on the cosmic level, this is the story, the story of God seeing and rescuing and hearing and coming in and, and saving. This is the cosmic gospel story. That God became the least of these to rescue and save us and establish the kingdom of God that is reaching into the least of these places. And so the God who rescues and saves the least of these is a God of justice. And so what do we learn about justice as we think through this passage? What we learn is that justice is in the small things. And that it's the small things that matter. And as we think about the small things, what do, what, what do I mean by them? What, is this, what, is the, what does the gospel writer mean by the small things? Well, when we think about the small things that Jesus mentions, we have to realize these aren't big things. They're small. Feeding somebody, giving somebody water, inviting people into your home, bagging up and handing down your old clothes, consistently checking in on somebody who is sick and visiting people in prison. Well, that one may be a little bit bigger. But regardless, these are small things. These things don't require a seminary degree. They don't require a ton of Bible knowledge. They don't require right theology. And you don't need to be amazingly gifted or educated in order to do these things. You don't have to be wealthy. They're small things that any and every person can be involved in and can do for others. 
And I think that this is important because so often we, like so many others, like to make it about the big things. We like to think about the big causes and that these are the things that matter to Jesus the most. And that, and that count in the way that we are, we are looked on as followers of Christ. And those things are important, and please don't hear me saying that they're not. And that is why Renew is involved in things like Daughters of Cambodia and the Independent Church of India. We want to see the end of slavery and sex trafficking and racism and other human injustices. But we can't do that in neglect to the small things. Both are extremely important, and we need to be people that have a double major. And so why do we do, why do the small things matter? Well, it's because our lives are made up of small things. They're made up of ordinary moments, situations that seem almost mundane to us, and that it is in those things that Christ's rule and reign should be working themselves out. One thing that you've got to love about this parable is that both sides are surprised that, that, that what they're doing means anything or that it even makes a difference. That both of those involved in doing the small things, that, that it's oblivious to them. That they're unaware of the significance of the small things that they do in life. They don't understand the importance of them. And why do you think that is? I believe it's because all the opportunities that are mentioned are things that we face daily in our lives. And they're part of our daily grind. It's part of just what we do as humans. It's part of our daily living. And so when you think about our last month, who of us within the last month, who doesn't know someone struggling with providing food and shelter and water? I mean, for heaven's sakes, we meet at the Boys and Girls Club. Who doesn't know of a mom who just had a baby like Lindsay Smith who could use a meal? Who hasn't had the opportunity to invite someone new to their homes to welcome them and love them? Who doesn't know someone who would benefit from pulling, from pulling out the old stored-up clothes and passing them on to someone? Wouldn't that be a huge blessing? Who doesn't know a shut-in or someone suffering from depression or anxiety or maybe even dying of a disease that could use someone to talk to? Who doesn't know someone who knows someone whose third cousin is in prison that maybe you could go visit? And the truth is we all do, right? All of us. And what Jesus is saying, what he is teaching us, what he is calling us to, is that it is in the small moments, the ordinary moments, the mundane moments, that God really shows up. And these moments and the way we handle these moments really reveal whether his rule and reign is manifesting itself in our hearts. We're going to hear a story. And so I'm going to have Margie come up and she's going to share with us the story about how the small things really changed her. Man, my heart is racing. Can you hear through? Um, so I could share a lot with my story, um, but I'm going to focus mainly on my childhood. And I grew up in Lansdale and Upper Gwinnett, and so like fully in the area. My grandparents lived right on 3rd Street. I lived, I was born where Alcatraz is now at Lansdale Hospital. I lived on Chestnut Street. And then we moved to the Upper Gwinnett area. Um, I'm the youngest of three. My siblings are 10 and 8 years older than me. My dad was a computer programmer, so theoretically we were upper middle class. I went to private school, Dan 
seemingly normal. Except that my mom, um, prior to even being born, was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And, um, and I'm probably going to cry, which is kind of weird. I haven't shared my story in so long, and all weekend, you can ask Luke, I've been so emotional. And I think it's an anticipation of this, because I've been reflecting on so much. Um, and my dad, when I, let it be said, for what it's worth, I think we all see things through glasses. We can acknowledge that. We look at life kind of as though we wear glasses and have a point of reference. And I think our parents form a lot of our memories. And a lot of my memories were formed by parents that were inconsistent. <laughs> and um, so as I tell stories, sometimes I wonder what the truth is and uh, where they become embellishment. So when I reflect on my dad, I think he probably had manic depression, depression or was bipolar. So uh, he's very inconsistent. And I was essentially raised by two parents with mental illness. And um, my brother, for a large part of my life, was an alcoholic. My sister had some pretty, pretty crazy emotional stuff going on when we were little. So I came into the world, and I guess my mom had been on an upswing, which my dad told me. Um, my, uh, I guess, apparently the doctors, according to my dad, had encouraged my mom to abort me because she was on medicine and actually staying on it, probably how I was conceived. And uh, she didn't. So I, woke up, I grew up with this realization that my mom loved me enough to not do that, but I made my life pretty terrible for the rest of my family. At least that's how I felt. And, uh, and I was dirty, I wasn't well cared for, I didn't always have a lot of meals. Um, my house was filthy, I went to private school, uh, being made fun of all the time. I'm sure socially, I was like extremely awkward. Um, paranoid schizophrenia, for what it's like, for anyone who doesn't know, is that she had like regular manic episodes, so my mom would yell, she would scream, in fact, Her birthday party, and I remember seeing me at the birthday party and feeling very to how I act. 
that was my first like real friend. And not only did we become best friends, but her mom and I were like Michelle and I would meet and ride our bikes and I would spend numerous nights and meals and events and go to the mall with her family and I would eat their food and I would fight with her siblings and and the fights when I was home I I really felt like everything was my fault and I just wanted to make everything better. Like my entire life I remember trying to make myself like eat olives because I thought it would finally like make my dad happy and I would go to my friends' houses well my friend, let's be honest. And um and like Cannot 
explain to you the difference that that has made in my life. And I think about, I didn't think I would get married. I didn't want to get married for a large part of my life. And then I met someone like Dave Allen, who gave me so much hope for even that idea at a timely point in my life. And I wouldn't have had a context of what family was, of the fact that fighting is sometimes okay, and um, just so many things that people have not opened up their home to me and shared their food and given me money, and, and I'm sure it was messy. <laughs> I know it was messy. One of my best friends, it was three daughters and me, you know, and the youngest was always like jealous of me sometimes, you know, like, I'm sure it was messy. And because of that, I'm married, and of course not the perfect marriage, but like God, I'm so blessed, and I have three kids, and I can't imagine that they would have even been born, that I would have had the opportunity to be able to get married if people did not open up their home to me and share with me and allow me to see their family and what a family was. And so it is amazing to think about the global, you know, perspective. And I have done missions and I felt passionate about it and I still do. But I also think being a grandparent and an uncle and a friend and a, you know, a parent of your, or a friend's parent and all, all that kind of stuff, a neighbor, it really is those little things that have like made all the difference in the world. And they just all piled on top of each other to give me a chance that I, I wouldn't have had. I, I know I wouldn't have had. And so um, just, yeah, that's just it. Yeah. Well, Margie, I'm, I'm amazed to hear your story, and I feel like the one thing that we continue to hear at Renew is how justice has many shapes and sizes and many backgrounds. And thanks for sharing with Renew what you sense God speaking to you last time, that we also have to talk locally how that works and what that, what that acts like. Um, but can we just affirm Margie for a minute? Yeah. 
Well, thank you. That's it. I mean, I don't think we can end any better way. Um, and so that's the story of the gospel. That God was faithful. That God chased us down. That he saw us. That he ran after us. And that he pulled us into his, into his chest. And he loved us. But he didn't do it in this ethereal way. He did it with the tangible hands and feet of us, of the church. That when God established the church, what he had in mind was Margie and Margie's story. What he had in mind was that humans trafficking and things like that begins to, come, begins to lower and eventually become eradicated when Jesus returns again. And we begin to enter into that story by tangibly noticing and loving and having people over for dinner. I love it. It's so subversive. You know, a lot of times we hear, you know, like, give us money or do this thing or do that, which is great and that's important. We need to be part of that as well. But really when it comes down to it, and this is what I love, that justice at its smallest and biggest is broken down to loving people. And it's about opening up your table. And so, Renew, here's my challenge to you this morning. Just three questions sit with it for just a moment. What are you going to do this week, this month, this year? What is standing in the way of seeing people as God does? And what do you need from the Lord this morning so that you can be set free? So, Father, you're extremely good. And, Lord, I'm so thankful to know that this morning, even in this morning as we meet that, in some mysterious way, you are across the world using your people to love the least of these, to give water, to give food, to clothe, to visit. And, Lord, I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful that you call us to be part of that story. That you, you have been gracious enough to save us, to pull us into your arms, and also to call us in to be part of your story of reconciling the world, your creation, back to yourself. But I pray that as we conclude this series on justice, that this wouldn't just be a conversation that we had for the last eight weeks that we put on a shelf and let get dusty. But Lord, I pray that we would begin to see our responsibility and the call of, of, of your heart to love people and to get angry when we see injustice happening, but to figure out the ways in which you're at work and the ways we can join you. Jesus, I pray for those that, that as they hear Margie's story, that their heart is beating loudly inside of their chest. I pray that you would give them courage and hope uh, as they begin to face some of those same things. And Lord, I'm thankful that you don't call us to go through this stuff on our own, but that you've given us the church to go through these things together. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.